0: In order to have a reasonable, well-informed opinion of how China and its policies impact the global economy and financial markets, you'd need to have a solid understanding of Chinese civilization, history, traditions, geography, and culture, not to mention its current economy, real estate market, politics, and stock markets. In this episode, we're not going to be able to cover all of these vast, complicated topics in a manner that they deserve. Instead, we'll endeavor to take a shortcut. I'm G3, and today I'll speak to Mike Edwards, Weiss's deputy CIO and resident policy expert, about his framework for assessing China as we head into 2022. So we welcome you to this important discussion and ask that you check important disclosures at the end of the episode. Mike, it is fantastic to be sitting down with you. I'm going to kick off by asking you an obvious and simple question just to sort of level set. Why should China sit permanently at or near the top for every allocator, investor, or advisor in this country?
1: Even if you don't think you're trading China, if you're trading a market, you're trading China in one way or another. There's no avoiding that. Um, China is the second largest economy on earth. It's quickly becoming the largest. Um, you know, it's, the largest uh, it's the largest destination for FDI in the world now. Um, and FDI means? Foreign direct investment. Okay, um, It's also, from the standpoint of yield-oriented investors, I think very importantly among developed markets, it's the only place on earth with positive real yields.
0: So let's just, let's just stop there. The only place on earth where bond yields can cover current inflation, inflation levels and reward you with a return on top of that to compensate you for your risk. Correct. Gotcha. Okay, so- It matters to everybody, whether you know it or not. Talk about where we are vis-a-vis China in the synchronization, asynchronization of policy imperatives.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Let me back up a second and just make clear that, you know, when we talk about policy imperatives, there's also a very big difference between the relationship between markets and policy in China and in the U.S., if policy is the expression of intent to shape behavior through rules and incentives, in China that happens on a very, very short feedback loop. And in the U.S., it happens on what is frequently a broken loop and is also frequently a much longer loop. And and so when we say that policy matters in China and that policy changes quickly, um, that is on, despite that the duration under which policies are made is much, much longer, the ability to pivot and have impact is much shorter in China. And so when we think about the the relative cycles of US policy or, or West, you know US plus Europe uh, and and China, there are times in which they're headed in the same direction that they're synchronous and that was most markedly at the, the Shanghai Accords in 2016. And then there are times when they are asynchronous. And I think this right now is a time in which you know if you even if you just focus on the PBOC and the Fed, we have asynchronous policy. We are broadly speaking tightening financial conditions in the US, while the Chinese are loosening financial conditions. And the link between them of course is the peg from the renminbi to the dollar.
0: Well, could you could you just talk briefly you 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 made reference to the Shanghai accords which I think are a very important framework for people to understand and yet, you know, I, myself, and I think many other people have a little bit of you know difficulty in understanding its significance. Can you just give us a 10-second recap of why the Shanghai Accords were so important?
1: In basic terms, it was an agreement for FX stability between the U.S. and China, in which, broadly speaking, both economies would benefit from a weaker dollar and the renminbi weakening with it.
0: And that is a key pillar of the framework that you still bring to your analysis today, Correct.
1: Well, it, it is in the sense of the two concepts, one we just discussed, synchronicity, and then the other, uh, which we should talk about now, is globalization. As we think about globalization, and it's another reason why, you know, sort of China policy matters to U.S. market participants, the broader force, or the, maybe the broadest force for globalization over the last, let's call it 25, 30 years, let's say since the fall of the Berlin Wall, has been the export of cheap Chinese labor to inflate profit margins and keep the cost of goods globally down. And that has happened amidst what many would describe, and I would agree, as one of the greatest economic miracles in human history, which is the lifting of a billion people out of poverty in China since the late
0: 70s. You know, that's a really great point, though, and I feel like it doesn't get the attention it deserves when people question the competency of the Chinese government. I mean, it's an extraordinary feat made across a few different uh, leadership regimes in China, is it not?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, look, there's no shortage of human misery in China, both today and through history. But if you think about the political legitimacy of the CCP, uh, that act, which bridges several generations and several leadership regimes, as it were, is really an incredible feat that they've achieved. Uh, And it also, when I say it underpins political legitimacy, it is in many ways the ongoing mandate of the state to maintain, now the term is common prosperity, but the economic wherewithal, not of the wealthy and not of the poorest, but of very much what is now a massive Chinese middle class, which is a remarkable accomplishment.
0: So when the Chinese government says our current policy is to promote shared prosperity, your point is that there is a lot of credibility that the government brings to bear where most people are going to say, okay, if this is the uh, number one goal of the Chinese government and the communist party, people are going to say, okay, they have a pretty good track record over the last few decades.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Especially as it relates to balance and stability. And this is an important political lens to look at at markets. When you're dealing with a one-party system, the greatest fear or anxiety that motivates policy is losing power. I mean, you could think of there as being election cycles in the sense of either changing or reinforcing a mandate within the party. But broadly speaking, they are trying to keep people in general happy enough and satisfied enough – that there's no actual mandate for significant change. And so as a political force for stability, you also see the echoes of a Beijing backstop in markets, which is to say that large market moves or massive volatility to the extent destabilizing is anathema to that very political legitimacy that has been so hard fought over, like, as you said, uh, several regimes.
0: Would you call the Beijing backstop something akin to what we call in this country the Fed put, or is it different?
1: Well, as it relates to markets and being sort of a, a vol dampener, meaning a volatility dampener, some a shock absorber, I think it plays conceptually a similar role. But the structural underpinnings are wildly different for a couple of reasons. One, it's definitely a whole of government mandate, meaning, uh, you know, not only are you bringing the the PBOC to bear, but also a, a host of other bureaucracies. And regulatory entities. Um, it's also at both the central and the local level in many cases. Remembering that local governments tend to fund themselves through bond issuances, as in the U.S., but also property sales, and have there's cross ownership of banks, property companies, etc. Um, I think there's also, I mean, the simple fact that the largest banks are majority owned by the state is another form in which uh, transmission of credit policy whether it's expansionary or contracting, is there's uh, much tighter levers to, or I should say, much more well-oiled levers to pull as a result. And then I think finally, the fact that there's a one-party system and there's no room for dissent means that in many cases, political speech and communication is much more powerful as a policy mechanism than it might be in the U.S. Because it, in many forms, the expression of political will, as I said before, very quickly becomes policy reality. So the jawboning, as it were, is potentially in many cases as powerful from, let's say, the, you know, a Li like figure uh, as it might be from, in the U.S. equivalent, of Jay Powell if you thought about it this way, if Kamala Harris stood up at a microphone and said, "I don't think markets should go down today," it, it would be received <laughs> with laughter. Right? Well, just like if, I'm doing now. If Lee Chong stood up and said that, it would be taken very, or Wang Qishan, you know, it would be taken very, very seriously.
0: So, I guess the broader point here is, even though in the you know here we are in the states, this concept of the Fed put helps us sleep at night, knowing that if things get too rough in the markets and in the economy, the Fed will bail us out. I think what your point is, is that the Beijing backstop, as you've termed it, has more ballast, it has more brawn, and it has a greater level of certainty, because I ran out of words that began with B. It has a greater level of certainty to ensure that the will of the government is translated into the desired outcomes.
1: Exactly. Um, you know, in, in it. it you could think of since we're sitting here in front of microphones, you know, you could think of senior leadership in Beijing as being engineers with microphones. They like <laughs> con- they like control, and they can express that control through communication and through actual policy. And the interaction between those is much tighter.
0: Okay, well, let's move now to discussion of uh, 2022. Um, we're, we're going to get to in a few minutes the things that may get too much attention where the perception is greater than the reality, but I would first like to talk to you about the things that you are going to be paying close attention to because of your view on their significance. What are are some of
1: those things? So I I would start with this term we used a minute ago, of common prosperity, and the, the shape that that takes going forward. I think to date... You've had a a very glass half empty view, at least from foreign markets perception of this concept, because it's led to a lot of regulation of the tech industry, and it's destroyed a lot of market capitalization, mostly in foreign markets to some extent in in Hong Kong, but in sort of, you know, in broad terms, the rationale for a lot of that regulation has been making the lives of the laobai shing of the common person much easier. And I think the rebalancing with an eye towards stability and sustainability is very much tied to not cracking down on things that threaten the power of the government just to crack down on other forces – you could look at for example you know the the jack ma as you know as creating problems when he criticized regulation in front of the the ant financial ipo you could look at it through that lens but you could also think of it as some of the antitrust focused activity being extremely effective in Bringing prices down and bringing power, whether it's over data or uh, just pure competition, back into balance, and being frankly much more effective than a lot of the Western antitrust efforts vis-a-vis big platform tech in our markets.
0: How about supply chains?
1: Yeah, I think that that would be second on the on the list of why China should matter in twenty twenty two and what what is going to change significantly. A lot of that is going to be kind of exogenous to China, meaning the U.S. and Europe really advancing a resiliency agenda, both at the government and corporate level. And with that resiliency comes a re-regionalization of supply chains. Um, ironically, the, the amount of capex required to do that um, is probably going to require a lot more consumption, both from a material and from a finished goods standpoint of Chinese material and, and production. But I think reorganization and the contours of it is going to be really important. I think you could look at a number of industries through that lens. Probably semiconductors is the most important of them. But even downstream from that, there's going to be a lot of volatility as a result of that reorganization.
0: So I, I think that there is a fair bit of coverage on the issues related to the supply chain in China and U.S. dependency on it. What I think gets less coverage are the issues related to the changing demographics of China? Could you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. When we try to model or build a model for a policy agenda and policy motivation, a a lot of that is driven by what Beijing considers the biggest risks to the regime. And I think demographics uh, and generational angst and frustration are, are very close to the top of that list. And when I say generational frustration, I'm referring to things like the Lie Flat Movement the, the, the involution movement. Wait, hold on.
0: Before before you continue, can you just explain what the life flat movement is referring to?
1: Sure. Both of these movements are really an expression of frustration with the proverbial rat race. Um, the phrase in at least in the tech sphere in China, is that the, the working week is nine nine six. It's nine to nine six days a week, and that's just too much. And the involution movement, the sort of meme that is frequently referenced, is of a, a Chinese man on a bicycle in in, in Beijing balancing his uh, laptop on the handlebars of his bicycle so that he can work even while he's commuting to work, and that this is just too much. <laughs> and the frustration levels as a result are very high. And I think there's a desire from the administration to balance that out with ways of making life easier.
0: And can you just speak to broader demographics as well?
1: Yeah, I remember one of the first phrases I learned when you advanced learning Mandarin to speak about policy was Yi jai de the one-child policy, which of course no longer mm. exists, right? Originally, the idea was to constrain population growth so that it didn't get out of control and create economic pressures that, that couldn't be met in terms of literally feeding a population. Which population we've now largely lifted out of poverty. And now the problem is, are we actually uh, going to grow enough such that that's been relaxed? It became the two-child policy, then the three-child policy. And now it's really, you know, trying to make even having kids at all appetizing, which is where you get things like the video game tightening and you get the the ban on for-profit education. Um, it's very much through a demographic lens that you can consider where some of this common prosperity uh, mantra is being brought to bear.
0: I've never heard you speak Mandarin before. You, you actually do speak it, don't you?
1: Well enough to think that way, at least.
0: <laughs> That's very impressive. Um, all right. Look, one last question um, before we, we turn to the Fagazis as, as we've termed them. Do you think it's possible for the Biden administration to be able to advance a pro-climate agenda while also appearing to be doing something on inflation and also maintaining the perception of being tough on China, are all of those things possible to do at once?
1: Practically speaking, no. And the reason I I modify that with the word practical is we're going to see and are already seeing a big difference between the optics of Sino-U.S. relations and the practical realities. Um, And I think you put it perfectly in terms of the green agenda in particular, because I think One of the first examples we're seeing of where the proverbial optical rubber hits the practical road is with solar panels. China's the largest, cheapest producer globally of solar panels. We in the U.S. have built um, solar into a big part of the green agenda. We have to hit budget numbers for them. And having an anti-dumping case and massive tariffs on Chinese solar flies totally in the face of those priorities. And so what's happened? We've very publicly maintain the Trump tariffs on China. And, you know, Biden has talked tough and China being a problem is one of the only things that Republicans and Democrats sort of publicly agree on, right? But behind the scenes, the Commerce Department has actually dropped the anti-dumping case against the largest Chinese solar manufacturers, such that we can now import solar panel's not quite tariff-free, but certainly much cheaper than previously. And that's all happening very quietly because we don't need to advertise the practical realities and the problems thereof of these, as you put it, sort of inconsistent uh, agendas. So, So
0: public tough talk, but quietly offering concessions and peaceful symbols of cooperation.
1: Yes. And I expect that to continue on other fronts, where when we talk about the US-China trade war, we will maintain a warlike posture. But the reality behind the scenes is things are going to get easier, not harder. And that is certainly the below the surface reality day to day.
0: All right. Well, let's let's end by talking about some red herrings, pun intended. Let's talk about Evergrande and the broader real estate sector. There are undoubtedly going to be additional headlines trying to promote concern for the health of the Chinese real estate market. What's your take on that?
1: When we talk before about common prosperity and thinking about what matters to the regime and the Beijing backstop, let's put that into the context of the housing sector in China. The number I want everyone to keep it in the back of their minds is 89. 89 is the percent of Chinese households that own their own home. Wow. To put that in context, in the U.S., that's 64%. In Japan, it's about 60%. In Germany, it's 50,
0: 51%. And going down in the U.S., I believe, right?
1: I think that's right. Wow. So when you talk about the role of the property market, in the perceived well-being of the common person in China, it's damn important. And I would also point out that the the household wealth of the median Chinese household is not as well diversified as the U.S. equivalent or the European equivalent. There aren't a bunch of stocks in a 401k Hmm. or bonds sitting there or what have you, or a pension plan for that matter. It's pretty much a home or apartment or what have you, as not just the the core of their net worth, but also what is being transferred from one generation to another. They're levered
0: along their own property.
1: And it is not a situation in which the government can tolerate the level of protest and indignation if people watch their net worth crash in front of their eyes. That is not tolerable. And the reality is the state owns the banks. And, you know, continues to have huge interest in the property market and can ease as they see fit.
0: Understood. All right. Well, I know you have to get back to the desk, but before I let you go, I need to just ask you, are you at all concerned about a full scale Chinese invasion of Taiwan?
1: Yeah, I would also put Taiwan under the red herring heading. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's very convenient for Taiwan to be a source of angst and tension And it's not a new phenomenon necessarily. It's probably about as intense as we've seen. Um, But it's useful to both Beijing for nationalistic purposes and also, frankly, to the U.S., both because there's such political agreement on China being a threat, but also for defense budgets and the like. Uh, Unless I just sound completely cynical about that, there's cause for concern. You know, it's different now than it was 20 years ago because we have precedent from Hong Kong and a number of other things. But I I would put it this way. You know, I think we generally believe in the wisdom of markets. If people in Taiwan were incredibly concerned about pending PRC boots on the ground there, the Taiwanese stock market would not be making all-time highs. And you'd see pretty strong correlation between when, you know, PRC aircraft fly into Taiwanese airspace and how markets are trading. There, there's no such correlation. This is something that makes its way into the diplomatic press and the Western financial press. And if you think about it from Beijing's standpoint, the most strategic asset leaving the history and the the nationalistic importance aside, which, of course, those are important drivers, but the most important economic asset is semiconductor production know-how and wherewithal. And that is IP. That is not something that's instantiated in a set of fabs that will live forever. Mm. So if that IP literally physically leaves the island of Taiwan in the form of engineers and, and other folks leaving, that's a real problem. And it's also a reason why kinetic Force is not going to be the solution to the quote unquote Taiwan problem.
0: That's great. And I want to briefly ask you any final words, final parting thoughts as we enter into next year to just keep in mind as we see both expected and unexpected headlines emanating out of China.
1: I would just say that we should always remember that optics matter. And that's true on both sides of the Pacific, but whether we're going into the Olympics and thinking about appearances in that context, or we're thinking about different topics, there are a couple of expressions that are useful. The idea of saving face and the idea of finding a Mm win-win. Those are very important matters as we think about the optics of a situation and the underlying reality. So I'd encourage people to sort of try to separate where possible signal from noise and understand that the Western financial press is axed to report negative news about China all of the time, whether on a relative or absolute basis, um, and think about what's really going on through this policy lens, both a broader historical and long term context, but also where the reality differs from the optics and whether solutions can be positive sum or zero sum, depending on your perspective.
0: That's very helpful. And that's a great place to end it. But we are definitely going to speak more about this in the future. For sure, so look forward to it. Thank you so much, Mike.
1: Thanks, G3. All right.
2: This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.